2: I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Each week, we take a nonpartisan dive into topics related to the federal budget, the economy, and how it all affects our nation's future. This week, Tory Gorman, Steve Robinson, and I will break down the budget and debt limit deal struck by President Joe Biden and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. Then we'll get some insider perspective from two experts who were in the room for the 2011 debt limit showdown, They are Jason Furman, who was a top economic advisor to President Obama at the time, and Rohit Kumar, who was a top advisor to Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell. They took part in a virtual forum we hosted last week, just days before the deal was struck, and we'll hear what they think about the shortcomings of the debt limit as a negotiating tool and how the system might be improved. Well, Tory and Steve, it came down to the wire. But uh, last weekend, Biden and McCarthy made a deal. Um, There are still some hurdles to be cleared before it becomes law, like little things like passing the House and the Senate. Uh, And uh, predictably, uh, people on both the left and the right don't like the details and are making that known. Um, Highlights of those details. The uh, the deal includes a two-year cap on discretionary spending that is a part of the budget that goes through the annual appropriations process and is about one-third of federal spending. Mm-hmm. It includes recession of some unspent COVID funding. Mm-hmm. It includes reduction of the increased funding for the IRS that was approved last year. It has increased work requirements for some people on social safety programs and we can get into some of the details about that and very importantly and crucially it suspends the debt limit through january 1 2025 so there are a lot of other details those are just some highlights republicans are claiming that the bill would reduce deficits by about 2 trillion over the next 10 years but that that number assumes that the spending rec- recommended spending caps would be in place for six years and the bill doesn't require that; it only has mandatory, man, mandated um, spending cap for two years. So, uh, the you know the the official number when we see it is probably going to be uh, a lot lower than that, um, closer to maybe a trillion or so. Though I'm guessing a bit. So, uh, in any event, with CBO projecting deficits of about twenty trillion over the next ten years, in any event, it's really not a uh, a game changing number. Um, You know, so the bottom line is that uh, the agreement provides modest deficit reduction at best, uh, most likely could have been accomplished through the regular budget process without putting the nation's credit credit worthiness at risk. And to be clear, the Concord Coalition supports the deal because it seems like a reasonable compromise and it avoids a perilous default. But unless Congress is wise enough to scrap or reform the death limit, we'll probably end up going through this whole exercise again at the end of 2024. Uh, Steve and Tori, you've both had a long time looking at uh, legislative text on these sort of deals. Um, Tori, let me start with you. Uh, What stands out for you about this particular deal?
3: I guess my opinion on this deal depends on which hat I'm wearing today. You know, if I'm a Joe Biden staffer, uh, I'm feeling pretty good Um, once, you know, all along he's been pushing for a clean debt limit increase. And and I think he definitely had the wind in his sails right up until the House Republicans managed to pass their own bill Uh, once. I don't think anybody thought McCarthy could do it. um, And once he was able to do it, I think Joe Biden recognized that, all right, I've got to negotiate with this guy. And when you take a look at what they negotiated, you know they're, they're, there's not uh, there's not a lot of pain in in this legislation. Um, I've you know given my years of experience on Capitol Hill, uh, it's it's been my experience that the appropriators are always smarter than the people that want to cut money. And I, I think those those the thumbprints of all the expert appropriators are all over this legislation. the, the, the legislation sets uh, statutory spending caps for 24 and 25 that are enforced via sequestration, but then there are all kinds of loopholes and escape clauses uh, that appropriators have access to. They're not exactly enumerated, but, you know, little tricks that they've used in the past they can use to increase uh, spending underneath those, that those caps. Um, if I'm, and you know, some of the other things that they're, you know, the, the work requirements, I don't think that they're significant, and in, in that they're going to throw a lot of people off of the, the support programs, you know, the rescissions, the covid rescissions, I don't think are going to be terribly painful. The IRS rescissions, that's just money that can that's you know, being rejiggered into another pot. Um, you know, the, the the other stuff, it just it, to me, it just doesn't, you know, as a Biden staffer, I would say this is not you know painful in any way. You know, it just sucks that we had to negotiate with Republicans over the debt limit and we really shouldn't have to negotiate over the debt limit as a budget wonk and a deficit hawk i'm looking at this and going crap they really missed out on a, on an opportunity you know with all the, the the big talking points that republicans came into we're going to spend you know less than we're going to bring discretionary spending back to where it was before covid um yeah i'm kind of sad there's not a lot in here that that moves the needle, as you say, uh, on spending in any way. And and of course, once they took all the big ticket items off the table, once they took Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, you know, those big drivers of spending off the table, there really wasn't much for them to work with. But even the stuff that was left on the table here, you know, instead of taking a big machete to it, they like took a butter knife.
2: Steve, anything uh, particular stand out for you?
0: Tori pointed out, I mean, there's not a huge amount of, of of spending reductions here. And of course, what we're fighting over are reductions in annual appropriation bills. And of course, that's something that Congress has to do every single year. I mean, normally you have fights over discretionary spending at the end of the fiscal year, which occurs around September 30th, October 1. And so, you know, we'll see how <laughs> whether Congress is actually able to to, to comply with the, the the caps that they've agreed to. Um, You know, that that's always, uh, you know, we we, back in 2011, we we were talking before that, um, you know, we negotiated a big deal, we put caps on spending and they held for a year, maybe sort of for a year, a year beyond that. But, you know, I mean, that's always the dilemma you know, every single year Congress has to do appropriation bills and things change. You have emergencies, you have, you know, floods and disasters and wars. And so to say today we're committing to some level of future spending without knowing what the future holds, you know, it's always an iffy proposition. So, and and I think that that we've got the same situation here where, you know, there are certainly good intentions on the part of the Republicans to say, look, we want to get a a control we want to reduce discretionary spending, but whether they're going to be able to follow through and, and hold to that, you know, hold themselves to that, much less the the, the Biden administration and, and their Democratic colleagues that they have to continue to negotiate with, as they do the twelve appropriation bills, you know, it's 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 uh, <laughs> remains to be seen what how this all turns out.
2: Yeah, and I think just to sort of underscore the the big savings is from the discretionary spending cap for two years and then extending that out I mean overwhelming so the other savings are very very small they're they're big rhetorically uh, and symbolically but uh, but basically this is a big appropriation bill
0: yeah I mean the, the work requirements is a good example there I mean under current law um, if you're a non-disabled or able-bodied adult without children, and they define that between the ages of 18 and 49, you're required to work in exchange for your your food assistance benefits, what's called SNAP. Um, part of the agreement is to extend the age uh, requirement from 49 up to 54. Now, that's actually phased in over a period of years. So in theory, you're going to expand the requirement for work in exchange for benefits, which is something that you know, used to be bipartisan. I mean, this, this goes back to the 96 welfare reform under President Clinton. But um, in, in addition to extending the age limit, however, they then turned around and said, if you're a veteran, you um, if you're a homeless individual or you're an adult, uh, young adult out of, out of foster care, the work requirements don't apply. So it, it'll be very interesting to see whether the new exemptions for homeless veterans and, and fo- young uh, adult fo- in foster care, whether those are bigger in terms of, of exemptions from the work requirements as the increased age limits. So that those two may very well offset each other. So it's, it's, it's not clear till we see a, a CBO estimate. Whether that provision saves anything at all, I, I, I'd, I'd be hesitant to speculate at this point.
2: You know, I want to look ahead a little bit as what this sets up, because I'm looking at 2025 and boy, that's going to be a year. Um, <laughs> this, this is what awaits the next president. Um, the debt limit is going to come back into play. It's going to come back to life. Mm hmm. On January 1st, um, 2025. 2025. Mm-hmm. At the end of 2025, uh, a, a lot of the 2017 tax cuts are scheduled to expire. Right. And at the end of 2025, these two year spending caps are going to expire. Mm-hmm. So I'm just wondering when this debt ceiling uh, comes mm-hmm. back to life in early. 2025. I'm wondering if they're going to have the same big fight over extending it, because at that time, the Republicans will be and many Democrats will be wanting to extend the tax cuts, which would be a a deficit increase relative to the baseline. Mm -hmm. And the Democrats and probably many Republicans will not want to extend the spending caps or or to set them at a higher level, which would also uh, be an increase relative to the baseline. And uh, I'm just wondering if they will both decide that they have a reason for wanting to keep the debt limit suspended. And maybe next time uh, it won't be such a uh, such a such a drama. What do you what do you think?
3: I, you know, I again, I, I think uh, in January 1st, on January 1st of 2025, uh, the Treasury Department will invoke extraordinary measures. Those extraordinary measures will carry the federal government for a certain amount of time. Uh, You know, this year they got us from what, February, April, February, March, April, May, June, May. So three, three and a half months. Um, So what you'll see then is probably extraordinary measures and then maybe a a, a temporary suspension to the point where they can marry up the appropriations with the tax provisions, uh, along with. A discussion over the debt limit roll it up into one big piece of legislation so that everybody's got something to say well i had to hold my nose and vote for this kitchen sink piece of legislation because it had this important tax it had tax cuts for you know middle-income americans it had tax cuts for you know sole proprietors it had tax cuts for small business in it uh you know it had necessary spending for social safety net programs so i had to sort of hold my nose and just accept the, the the debt limit suspension or the debt limit increase that's also going to be part of that bill. There are just going to be too many other things in there that people can point to and say, hey, that carried my vote. And I just sort of ignored the stench of the debt limit increase that was buried in the bill, like on the last page.
2: Yeah, you know, um, it really is, you know, the way to control the unsustainable debt is to control the unsustainable policies that produce the debt. <laughs> the debt limit, uh, this is an example, I think, of how the debt limit may really pose very little uh, restraint on things that Congress uh, would like to do. Steve, there's one element in this bill that I think is kind of interesting. It's a little bit in the weeds, but we've talked about it a lot in the, the issue briefs that you've written about the student loan forgiveness program is they're trying to do something in this bill called regulatory pay Now, that's a lot of jargon. But uh, but but, uh, you know, basically, as Congress has become more and more dysfunctional, presidents of both parties have tried to do more through executive actions and they can cost money. So it almost amounts to the executive branch taking over the spending authority. And you've written that that is not constitutional. Um, so anyway, this attempt to look at the cost of regulations and saying if an executive branch is going to propose something that's going to cost money, they need to find cuts elsewhere so it doesn't increase the deficit. Have you looked at at that pre- provision and, and do you think it's um, do you think it's a positive development?
0: Well, I mean, we certainly have seen last year the, the Biden administration uh, either issued or proposed three different regulations with regard to student loans that collectively could potentially spend almost a trillion dollars. So, you know, there there's there is an issue of you know executive agencies issuing regulations that cost money far beyond what Congress probably originally intended. So, the notion of of, of a congressional review of those regulations and and essentially what's in the in the bill here is to propose um, allowing reviews of legislation or of regulation and giving Congress sort of an opportunity to, 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 to veto them. And of course, it's a legislative veto, meaning that the president could veto the legislative veto, which would require Congress to try to override the presidential veto. So it's a very convoluted process, but certainly the intentions are good. And that is that you shouldn't have executive agencies Writing legislation that costs tens, if not hundreds, of billions of dollars without congressional approval, and so you know, I think the the provision is in the right. You know, the, the, their heart's in the right place in putting the provision in. Uh, it's 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 somewhat questionable how effective it will be, but uh, it's it's certainly a step in the right direction.
2: Well, uh, we're going to have to wrap up that uh, this segment, uh, giving our quick down and dirty assessment of the Biden McCarthy. Uh, debt ceiling budget deal. Um, we're going to be back after these short messages where we will get some inside perspective from Rohit Kumar and Jason Furman, who took part in a Concord Coalition virtual forum last week, just days before this agreement was struck. And we'll be right back with some excerpts from that forum right after these messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. In this segment, we're going to get some inside advice from uh, Jason Furman and Rohit Kumar. Uh, Those two gentlemen were involved in the 2011 uh, debt limit and budget negotiations. Furman worked for President Obama as a top economic advisor, and Rohit Kumar was a top advisor to Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell. Uh, And I want to get some perspective on how things might have been different or the same from that negotiation and what they think of the budget uh, of the debt limit, rather, as a budget negotiating tool. This forum took place virtually last week, just before the budget deal was reached between President Biden and uh, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. So here are some uh, excerpts about uh, about the debt ceiling from two people who know quite a bit about it from personal experience, Jason Furman and Rohit Kumar. So, Jason and Rohit, you were both involved intimately in the last. Well, we've had several debt limit crises, but a lot of times what's happening now is being analogized to the 2011 crisis. debt crisis, where we came within a couple of days of default, you were on opposite sides of the negotiation uh, table on that. And I I wanted to know, just first off, if there were uh, any differences, major differences between 2011 and now that you can see. Um, Jason, I'll start with you.
4: So uh, great to uh, be with you, Bob. Uh, great to be with my old friend, uh, partner in crime, Rohit. Um, you know, there's one thing that's obviously in common. You have a Democratic president, a Democratic Senate, and a Republican House. And that means whatever comes out of this is going to be have to be something that both parties agree to, um, which means it's going to be something that neither party is happy with. It certainly won't be something that when I look at it, I am happy with. Going into this, um, you had a president who was concerned to not repeat the experience and do less to negotiate over this, to do less to um, accept so-called hostage taking, as he calls it. Um, And you had a speaker who had a narrower majority and a group of people within that narrow majority that were more motivated um, to get as much as possible out of this. And so in some sense, the starting place was different. Um, I think the last thing is, um, you know, last time I think there was a little bit of an open mind for wanting to actually do a grand bargain for deficit reduction and a belief in that. I think on both the Republican side and the Democratic side, um, this time that definitely wasn't true on the uh, either side. Uh, It's not like the Republicans were willing to give revenue in exchange for entitlements. um, And it's not like uh, Democrats really wanted to do that deal either. So I I felt there was always less upside this time around.
1: Yeah, look, I would in general agree. Um, You know, there's the structural similarities uh, between the two. Um, You have this uh, newly discovered but long available tool in the House called the motion to vacate the chair, which, you know, complicates the life of a speaker. Um, but on the other side, um, you know, in 2011, we were laboring under a requirement um, set forth by then Speaker Boehner that every dollar of debt limit increase had to be accompanied by a dollar of spending reduction, not a, not a dollar of deficit reduction, but an actual dollar of spending reduction, um, which made the task before us uh, quite challenging and in my mind, dramatically uh, upped the odds of defaulting on our debt because there was an objective metric that you had to hit. Whereas at least in this transaction, as Jason alluded to, you know, entitlements are off the table. We're not having a a a serious conversation or even a non-serious conversation um, about entitlement spending. Uh, You know, as best as I can tell, the requirement, the stated red line is, you know, spending reduction and reforms or something, you know, that's pretty broad and to some degree incohate. And and it allows a lot of potential landing spots that would meet the stated criteria without anyone having to acknowledge uh, that they got you know, that they had to compromise on some deeply held um, principle. So, frankly, having an objective standard that we had to hit in 2011, I felt like made, at the outset, made the transaction much more difficult to execute than the one that they're facing now, where the requirements for success are somewhat more loosely defined and therefore easier to achieve.
2: Um, and before we get into some of those uh, negotiations and, and how they're, um, how they're going right now, I want to just do a little bit of uh, introduction to the debt limit um, as a concept. For one thing,
4: Jason, uh, why do we have a debt limit? How did it come about? I mean, first of all, one thing to understand is other countries don't have this. This is really an American thing. It's because the Constitution assigns Congress the authority to authorize the issuance of debt. It used to be that just every now and then you issued debt. So Congress could pass a law each time. World War One, all of a sudden, we need to issue a lot more debt. To simplify that process, Congress says you can raise debt up to this amount and then come back and check with us after you get to that. And then, you know, we can always raise the amount. Um, we've had that rule in place for um, a bit over 100 years now. It's been raised about 100 times now. Rohit,
2: does the debt limit prevent Congress from enacting new spending and tax policies that increase the debt? uh, Or does it simply prevent the Treasury from borrowing to pay for the policies that Congress has already enacted?
1: Yeah. So it it ends up being the latter, although there would be an argument for every time Congress uh, enacts a new policy change that would increase the deficit or the debt that they would have to accompany that with an equivalent debt limit increase. So that would be sort of self-executing, but we don't do it that way. We pass laws that spend money or reduce revenue or some combination of the two. Um, And then later, uh, often months, or sometimes not years later, we hit the statutory debt limit at whatever whatever number it's been set at. And just as a reminder, while it may seem to many viewers, um, like this is sort of an insane way to run a government, um, you have to remember, it would be even more insane in a relative sense to have Congress be voting every time we had to issue new debt, which we do now, you know, regularly. And this doesn't uh, in any way prevent Congress from doing, you know, enacting laws that would increase the the deficit on an annual basis or the debt on a overall basis. It just is at some point the bill comes due and now you have to negotiate, you know, how you are going to uh, sort of, frankly, increase the ability to borrow to pay those existing obligations?
2: Yeah, it would seem to make more sense if it was part of the regular budget process some way rather than, than an add-on, and we can, we can get to that uh, later as to what wh- ways we might be able to improve. Um, uh, Jason, another thing, just as a preliminary matter uh, that I wanted to talk about is the concept of default. Um, because I hear that term, um, pe- I think people are talking past each other sometimes when they say default is not an option because I think they may be defining it differently. Um, I think a lot of Republicans define it as to be defaulting on explicit Treasury securities, missing an interest payment on debt or not being able to roll over debt. Uh, Others define it more broadly to mean uh, the government missing any payment to whether it's to beneficiaries, uh, contractual uh, partners or grants to states or anything uh, missing any Obligation. So, how should we define default?
4: After the X date, the government will be in a situation where the law has told it to spend more than it can collect in taxes, and it's not allowed to make up the difference with borrowing. And so, one of the commitments it's made will have to give. The Treasury's never said what it would do in that circumstance, but certainly what we know about last time, and I was there last time is that the treasury would pay its principal and its interest on the debt, so it would not be defaulting on the debt. Instead, what it would do would be to reduce or delay or prioritize its payments of everything else, which, you know, under most definitions, uh, meets the definition of default as well. You're defaulting on obligations. You're not defaulting on your debt and interest obligation you are defaulting on other obligations by paying less or paying later than uh, what you had been contractually obligated to do or what the law told you to do.
2: And in, in either case, it may have an effect on your how people perceive your creditworthiness.
4: Yeah. Oh, and Fitch has already put the United States on notice of downgrade. S&P downgraded us last time, even though um, we averted the problem before, so I don't think the ratings agencies would be that patient by, you know, dancing on the head of a pin trying to define exactly what default means.
2: You may have different perspectives on this, um, but uh, regardless of how one feels about the debt limit, we do have a legitimate long-term debt problem in this country. Is that uh, would would you agree with that in one degree or another?
4: I think we have a fiscal sustainability problem. I certainly think. If we extend the tax cuts without paying for them and ignore Medicare and Social Security using gimmicks to get through them, um, I would expect our debt to continue to rise as a share of GDP. So at some point, something needs to be done um, about the trajectory. I think um, just those steps, by the way, would get us a long way. But you know, on the current course, yes, we have an issue.
1: Yeah, I don't think there's anybody that Well, there are a few, maybe just a handful, that would disagree with the premise that we are on an unsustainable trajectory. Uh, The challenge, uh, as it is in the very micro with the debt limit, and whether it's June 1 or June 2 or June 3, um, at a macro level is, you know, eventually it's unsustainable, but eventually is not a deadline. Congress really needs a deadline. They need some action-forcing event. And it's not clear to me what is the action force, the near-term action-forcing event anyway. With respect to the unsustainability of our uh, fiscal trajectory we you know we have some things that are you know eight nine ten years out the insolvency of uh medicare uh is one and a little bit further out is insolvency of social security uh, although insolvency is a little bit of a misnomer um it's the trust fund which is itself a little bit of an accounting fiction um runs dry and then the social security checks just get reduced by i think 23 percent is the current uh, projection so you know one week you're getting hundred dollars so and the next week you're getting 77 dollars um, and that well, the last time we had big Social Security reform was sort of in the in the shadow of one of those um, events happening. This is Tip O'Neill and Ronald Reagan. So this was ages ago. Um, so that's an action forcing event, but it might not be soon enough is the problem.
4: Well, there also is the possibility that Congress would do what it's done with the Highway Trust Fund and sometimes in part with Medicare, which is for, you know some gimmick, some general revenue transfer to get itself out of doing the type of thing it did in Yeah, yeah. that
1: solves the near-term trust fund, Medicare Highway Trust Fund problem doesn't, of course, address the underlying issue. It just shifts the balance from the trust fund that's insolvent to a general fund that will eventually be insolvent, but perhaps later. This is Facing the
2: Future. You've been listening to excerpts from a forum that the Concord Coalition hosted online last week on raising the debt ceiling. Can we avoid a crisis? And what if we don't? The uh, panelists were Jason Furman of Harvard University's Kennedy School of Government and Rohit Kumar of PricewaterhouseCoopers. They were involved as negotiators back in the 2011 debt ceiling crisis, uh, working for President Obama and Senate uh, Republican leader Mitch McConnell. Uh, we'll have more excerpts from this uh, forum right after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. We're listening to excerpts from a uh, a very interesting budget discussion that we had virtually last week between Jason Furman and Rohit Kumar. They were both budget negotiators during the 2011 debt ceiling crisis, and they have some very interesting perspectives on what legislators are going through this time and also what the debt ceiling uh, is, uh, whether or not it's effective as a negotiating tool and maybe some ideas for how we could improve it. You wrote a, um, an op-ed together, the two of you, in 2017 um, in which for, in The Wall Street Journal, in which you concluded that the statutory debt limit has outlived its usefulness as a mechanism for restraining the size of the national debt. Or put more precisely, we think that whatever residual value the debt limit may have is far outweighed by the risk that a potential U.S. default poses to the global economic order. Um, Do you still think that's true?
1: I certainly do. The amount of risk that we incur to me is far in excess of whatever potential hypothetical value we get in terms of uh, deficit or debt reduction, In, in part because history has shown us that We don't use this to make the hard decisions, right? We're not having a grand bargain conversation. Even in 2011, when we were trying to have a grand bargain conversation, or by we, I really mean Speaker Boehner and President Obama. I was not directly involved in that aspect of the talks. Um, It failed. Um, And so, you know, this has not proven to be an effective tool of fiscal restraint or fiscal sustainability, but it does continue to present. So this is existential threat to both the U.S. and ultimately uh, global economy. And so I think this is not working. Um, and presents outsized risks to the economy. And so we would be better off um, investing our energies and thinking about a better way to think about the fiscal uh, trajectory question that doesn't involve putting a bomb underneath the U.S. and global economy.
4: If we had not had a debt limit in existence, we still would have needed an appropriations bill, bills. We still would have, uh, that still would have been a compromise. It probably would have been about the same spending level we're going to end up with here. Now, let's say you think maybe spending's a little bit lower because of the leverage that House Republicans had, then go back to 2019. Uh spending discretionary may have been a little bit higher um, as a result of the leverage that congressional Democrats had then. Um, so I don't even know that you're getting, you know, I think you're not getting very much change in the trajectory of debt from this. Um, I'm not even sure if the change in the trajectory is positive or negative. If you raise interest rates, by the way, that's actually bad. Um, for the debt, well, and Jason raises, I think, uh, in this context especially, a, a, val- a particularly valid
1: point, which is you think about the, the topics that we think are you know in the mix for a you know a, a debt limit solution here, right? Discretionary spending caps. Well, you were going to need those anyway because you have to have an appropriations process. You have to have what we call a three hundred two a congressional budget parlance, the top line uh, spending number. Um, permitting reform. Both parties have wanted some version of permitting reform going back several years now. Um, this is a useful vehicle for carrying it, but it is not um, like that this would not have been that you were leveraging this for something. Both sides wanted this. We're sending some COVID money. Again, you could have gotten that as a part of the um, appropriations process and even uh, the possibility of work requirements, um, at least with respect to the food stamps program, uh, could have easily arisen and likely would have arisen had not arisen here in context of reauthorizing a farm bill uh, or the farm. The, the sort of the farm bill programs, the farm bill carries both food stamps and um, agricultural support payments, which is kind of gets back to, at least for me, the, the fundamental point of the 2017 op-ed, which is what we're getting out of this is not worth the potential risks that we incur.
2: You know, a lot of people hear about the debt limit and think it's, you know, they hear the back and forth and it's just typical Washington blether uh, and probably are thinking to themselves, um, you know, why should I Care about this issue. Um, so, as we turn to the consequences of default, um, Jason, I'll start with you. I mean, why should people care about this?
4: Yeah. So, first of all, just getting close in 2011, we saw a dramatic decline in consumer confidence. We saw interest rates go up and we saw the stock market um, really slide. All of that um, was probably bad for the economy right then. Back then, you couldn't quantify it. And that was getting it done on time. If you go past the date, um, there would be several types of economic consequences. One set would operate through consumer confidence and business confidence and investment and spending choices they make that add up to what happens in the economy as a whole. A second would be through financial markets, where um, rising interest rates and falling stock market would make it harder to access capital, borrow, grow, and the like. Um, And finally, there's just literally the government spending less money would have a Keynesian effect on the economy, eventually leading to a contraction. What is the magnitude of all of this and on what timetable? No one knows, because we've never tried it here in the United States. No one has ever done this in any other country either. Um, I liken it to you might be shooting yourself in the toe, which is unpleasant, but not horrible. You might be shooting yourself in the hand and you might be shooting yourself in the head. Moreover, each day you go past the debt limit, the X date, um, you'd be loading the gun again and firing it again. And so if you hit the toe the first three days in a row, on the fourth day, maybe it would end up being your hand. So we don't know exactly what time scale, um, but we know it's all bad. None of it's good. And the question is, how bad and how quickly does it become bad? And hopefully we'll never know the answer to that question.
2: So those are some of the uh, imponderables on the economy. Uh, What about the effect on the federal budget, Rohit? What would be the immediate effect if we went over that X date?
1: Well, so my memory is um, we collect about three-fourths of what we spend. So you would immediately cut federal spending by effectively uh, 25%, whether you actually just stopped on 25% or you did effectuate that by delaying payments, which might be the more you're going to manage your way through the crisis, might be a, a better path forward. Uh, but so you would have an immediate reduction in federal spending, but in a not in a thoughtful, let's think about where we want to prioritize spending kind of way, but more of in a haphazard, like we're just going to take a meat axe uh, to the federal budget. And look, there are there are probably almost certainly some some elected officials in the Congress today who think a three or uh, one fourth reduction in federal spending um, would be an acceptable policy result. They don't have the majority in either chamber, but there are certainly some that probably subscribe to that point of view. But I don't think there are any. That would take the point of view that that twenty five percent reduction in federal spending ought to be just done sort of haphazardly. They would have a they would have a theory of the case as to how they wanted to reduce federal spending. They would not sign up for indiscriminate reduction in federal spending, whether that's Medicare or Social Security, which both parties have said they should not be on the table for you know a conversation, at least not in this transaction, or defense spending or NIH spending or you know whatever it is. Um, you know there would be something there that people would object on both sides. Uh, to being uh, reduced, so you know it's it's a really foolish way to go about achieving something. Even if you're ultimately in agreement on the goal, which again I don't think there is you know, 218 votes in the House nor 60 in the Senate for a you know one fourth reduction um, in federal spending. And and to sort of Jason's fundamental point, while we don't know exactly the result, the, the range of options are somewhere between bad and sort of unimaginably bad. Like there's no happy story of default and then better things follow it is only how bad will it be
2: um, and that 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 spending cut because you're right i mean i'm sure there are some people who say well all right a 25% spending cut that's great but it's a it's a phony spending cut in the sense that it's only a delay i mean you're you you're only not spending because you can't borrow but it's not canceling the obligations that um, that generate that spending so uh, you know unless there's an accompanying policy change that Changes of spending, you're just sort of building up uh, a big stack of unpaid bills, isn't that?
1: Yeah. I mean, look, at some level, I mean, if you were to just play out the hypothetical to its extreme, setting aside the devastating economic consequences, if you just never raised the debt limit, right, we just sustained it where it is today, you know, for the infinite horizon, right, you would eventually then, I assume you'd have to authorize the Treasury Secretary or, or some executive official to make some decisions about which bills we're going to pay and which bills we're just not going to pay. I can't imagine any member of Congress would be comfortable just delegating that level of authority um, to the secretary. But that's effectively what you would be doing.
2: Yeah, this uh, kind of uh, leads to the the last thing I want to talk about. But where does this leave us? I mean, so we have this kind of vague negotiation where they were they debating over the debt limit or not. are we at a point where holding the creditworthiness of the United States hostage isn't is in effect the only way we get things done i mean i I do worry about uh the breakdown of the regular budget process we were talking about how a lot of what they wanted to do here uh they could have done this with the regular budget process and and as jason pointed out you you still have the shutdown option at the end of the fiscal year uh and yet this fight has been staged over the debt limit. It, it's in where there are much greater consequences. And um, do you think there is a potential
4: for this just being regularized? Look, Bob, you said in your question, is this the only way we can get things done? We get barely anything done this way. Um, you get maybe got slightly higher discretionary spending in 2019, maybe slightly lower this year, or maybe they were both the same as what they would have been um, anyway. So this has not been a successful way to force meaningful action on the debt. So I would scrap it. If you can't scrap it on the Bipartisan Policy Center, put forward a thoughtful proposal. It said if Congress puts forward, I believe it's a concurrent budget resolution, but Rohit can correct me if I get the terminology wrong, then it automatically increases. Um, If they can't put one forward, then the president has to put forward deficit reducing legislation and whether or not Congress passes that legislation, um, the debt limit effectively automatically um, gets raised. So I think something like that is a little bit clunkier than just repealing it. But either one would be a big improvement over what we do now. Um, And then in terms of deficit reduction, I don't entirely know, Bob, sort of what the forcing event will be. Um, One could be markets. If interest rates go up, you know, in some sense, deficit reduction isn't that pressing right now. And financial markets are telling us that Um, at some point they may tell us something different. I think that's part of what motivated action in the 80s and early 90s were interest rates were a lot higher than Mm -hmm. they were now. Deficit reduction, I think, was more important back then. Um, And then the other thing is the Social Security and Medicare solvency dates, I think, are really great forcing events that... um, you know, we should all be prepared to do something. Now, I think we should do things mostly on the revenue side. Rohit probably thinks something different. And, you know, that will be the debate and conversation that needs to happen. Rohit, do you have
2: any uh, favorite uh, debt limit alternatives?
1: Yeah. So, look, I'm also a fan of the BPC's proposal. It's called the Responsible Budgeting Act. It was introduced last Congress by uh, Congressman Arrington and Congressman Peters. Congressman Arrington is now chairman of the House Budget Committee, uh, Arrington. Um, It... To me, the most you get out of the debt limit, and this is being generous to the debt limit, is you force at least a conversation about our fiscal path. Now, we've not actually used that conversation to make meaningful change, um, but if the most you get out of the debt limit today, and, and again, at the risk of defaulting on the debt and blowing up the financial system, is you force a conversation, well, let's think about what we're getting and let's we replicate that without you know triggering the consequence of um, defaulting on our debt. And I think the Responsible Budgeting Act does exactly that. It, it forces at least once a Congress a serious look at our current fiscal trajectory and asks Congress the question, are you comfortable with this? Are you prepared to make the hard choices that you heretofore have not been willing to make in order to right size the state a fiscal ship? It doesn't require Congress to do anything, just as the current debt limit exercises don't require Congress to make the hard choices. In fact, so far we typically have avoided making the hard choices, but it just forces the conversation because those hard choices are only going to happen. When the political stars are aligned for those hard choices to be made, whether that's because of markets or the trust fund insolvency or whatever it is, whatever the external forcing event is that causes the political stars to align, um, what, I, what I sort of why I like the, the sort of BPC proposal is it forces us to have the conversation on a regular basis, so that in the event the stars have aligned, we don't miss an opportunity to execute on the transaction, and we can do so without holding the full faith and credit of federal government hostage. Because so long as you have the conversation even if Congress decides, eh, we think we're good with 120% debt to GDP ratio, wherever we are at the time. um, As long as they have the conversation, the debt limit is increased. So you use it to get the thing you really are getting today, which is at least a conversation. And I would argue the conversation that the the BPC proposal uh, encourages is actually a more serious conversation than the one we've typically been having, but it de-risks the whole exercise. And that to me is the real value. And that's not to say that it's the only solution out there. It's just to me having been thinking seriously about this, at least since 2011, is the sort of most complete um, kind of replacement for what we get today uh, by while always taking, not always, by while also uh, taking the risk out of the system.
2: You've been listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. That's all the time we have for this week. We were hearing excerpts from a policy forum that the Concord Coalition hosted with two budget experts and negotiators from the last debt ceiling deal back in 2011, Jason Furman and Rohit Kumar. If you want to hear the entire forum, uh, please, uh, you can look it up on our website at uh, ConcordCoalition.org. We'll be back next week with another edition of uh, Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Thanks for tuning in.